So, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of The Lowdown. I'm joined today by Kiran, Tejwani, Arthur, and Winds of Change, how the world's biggest energy drink manufacturer made American football to discuss all things Red Bull. Welcome to the pod, Kiran. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. So, um, Kiran, just so if you could begin, just by giving everyone a brief background of yourself and your passion for football. Right. So, um, I'm... I'm currently a student at, uh, at uni studying sports journalism. I've been covering sport and writing about sports, mainly football, since uh, 2016. Um, you know, my, my previous experience has included featuring on websites like um, these Football Times, Sports 360, The Guardian, lots more others. Um, and yeah, I, I mainly watch and write about English and German football, which is my two main interests. Uh, obviously, last year in 2020, as you mentioned, I published my first book uh, called Wings of Change, which was about Red Bull's influence in football. And alongside that, I've also been running a website. Well, I used to run a website called Football Chronicle, and we published our first book co-authored with uh, myself and 19 other authors um, called Iberia Chronicles, which focused on Spanish and Portuguese football. So, yeah, that's, that's a small brief on, on my background in football. Fantastic. And then I suppose, where did the idea come from to write about Red Bull's relationship within football? Well, it's always been a bit of a controversial one, isn't it? Like, we, when you think about Red Bull and football, you see the bad side of it, which is, you know, the way they've inorganically risen in the game, the way they have a bigger financial advantage than almost every other club they play in, in, in Austria and Germany. Uh, and then you can also see the more positive side of things where they focus on... Uh, playing with an attractive style of football, playing word, playing with verticality, playing attacking football, high-pressing football, and playing with younger players, which is the most appealing part. You know, their success is uh, built on teams which have an average age of around 24, 25 years old, you know, when they reached the Champions League semi-final last season and they had a very young team. But, but that's what's... There's a bit of a balance between them, isn't it? That they have a mix of both positives and negatives. So that's always been appealing to me. And um, yeah, I thought it would be worth covering all that in the book. And there were a few fascinating figures to cover as well. People like Ralph Raniak, Julian Nagelsmann, Jesse Marsh. So yeah, all, I felt all that was worth putting into one book and it's out there now. Fantastic. And then just touching upon the Red Bull model, the controversial multi-club model. Um, we spoke with Albert yes, on yesterday's podcast about Barcelona. Was there a possibility in the future fan ownership? Maybe no more. Um, I mean, you were both familiar with the 50 plus one rule in Germany. However, you're seeing a proliferation of uh, multi-club groups entering the real now, such as Red Ball, backed by Moneyball's very own Billy Bean, uh, Richard Scudmore, former chief executive of the Premier League. You're looking at GACP Capital, backed by Dan DeGrossa, looking to buy Southampton at this present time. Um, yeah. What's your stance, I suppose, Karen, on multi-club ownership within football? It's, it's nothing we can stop, really. I think it's the future of the game. I think more, more people will get involved in it because they see how uh, beneficial it is in the long term. Uh, I wouldn't say it's profitable immediately, but if they play their cards right, it's certainly something that some people can make a lot of money out of. Um, you know, and the, club, the, the people you mentioned, the groups you mentioned are a small group. We've seen uh, the City Football Group, which is perhaps the best example of this. Um, they have 10 clubs around the world. Uh, in just about every continent except Africa. And they're expanding into bigger markets each time, you know, China, India, uh, Uruguay, Bolivia, USA. They've all been targeted in certain ways and they want to help each other. And ultimately, if they can help Manchester City. 
Um, so I see it as the future of the game. I think it's personally I don't I don't like it. You know, it feels a bit inorganic. As I said, I don't I don't I don't I don't endorse what Red Bull do, nor do I endorse what City do. Um, but it is what it is. Eventually, I think someone somewhere will see a lot of benefit from it, and they will want to do it. So I, we can't stop it, but it is ultimately the future of the game. I think more and more bigger clubs will get involved. Okay. Now, most of our audience, Karan, are, of course, familiar with Red Bull Leipzig, uh, Red Bull Salzburg, New York Red Bulls, and Bragatino down in Brazil. But how exactly does Red Bull's model work? Uh, it's, it's a very refined model uh, that's focused around developing younger players. Uh, you know, Ralph Raniak in 2012 joined the club. Before, before Ralph Raniak, you could say that they were a bit of a mess. Um, Salzburg used to win trophies. Uh, Leipzig pro- were promoted from the 54th division and New York Red Bulls were there and they were doing all right for themselves. But there wasn't really long-term vision that, that was sustainable enough. You know, Salzburg had older players. They were winning trophies, but their older players weren't exactly the best. They weren't going far in Europe. Uh, but it all changed when Ralph Lennick arrived in 2012 and he changed the whole philosophy of all the clubs along with a few other people. Um, you know, there is the model that he has a saying of capital, concept and conf- uh, competence, which is the three C's or the three K's in German. Um, you know, capital is when you have enough money to sustain the club. You know, you, you generate your own money. You don't have to rely on someone else. Um, co- um, concept is the way they play, which is the style we all we all know and we all enjoy watching. You know, the attacking style and playing with high intensity. And competence is what the players, is, is on the player side of things where players show enough a, a positive mentality towards their work and want to develop. So, I would say the three C's or the three K's in German uh, of capital concept of competence is is the Red Bull way. That is what the club look out for in the end. Sure. And your own book, Karan, uh, Jonathan Harding's wonderful book on Mensch, on German coaching, both touch on Ralph Ragnick and Helmut Gruss, who feature prominently in both of your books. Now, those two men undeniably have transformed German football. They've certainly brought it into the 21st century, um, especially with their revered kind of fandom of <laughs> high gegen style pressing in the late 1990s. Now, the, the Athletic actually produced a really neat infographic recently on the coaches that were molded by Ralph Ragnick and his image. It's a fairly comprehensive list. It includes yeah. the likes of Jurgen Klopp, Roger Schmidt, Ralph Hausenhuttel, um, the dream team of Borussia Mönchengladbach, Marco Rosa and Rene Marich, Eddie Hutler, Jesse Marsh, Julian Nagelsmann, so on and so forth. How crucial is Ralph Ragnick's role within the Red Bull operation? It's the most important. I, I, without Ralph Ragnick, they wouldn't be where they are right now. Obviously, he's left the club. He's left the organisation right now. Um, but while he was there in the seven years, his work was imperative. Um, as I said before, that before he joined, uh, all all the clubs were didn't really have a long term vision, and eventually, without Ralph Rangnick, that that project would have crashed. You know, it wouldn't have worked out as well as as, as it has now, despite having all that money. But Rangnick brought a more refined vision to the group. Um, his work in Germany, he's always wanted to work around younger players. His whether you look at if you look at his history, right from the nineties at Stuttgart when he was there in the 90s he was he was in charge of the youth teams and he revolutionized their youth system they now produce players like Joshua Kimmich and Serge Gnabry and Timo Werner you know these top german players all grew up in the Stuttgart academy that he developed that he revolutionized alongside Helmut Grosch 
And then you did the same at clubs like Schalke and Hoffenheim. Hoffenheim was, you know, a bit of a lower version of Red Bull where they had lower investment, uh, but they had similar ambitions. You know, they grew up from the eighth division to, uh, from the third division to the first division when Ranik was there. And um, that was down to him wanting to play with younger players, play with a similar style that we've seen in Leipzig. You know, in the, in the first season that Hoffenheim played in the Bundesliga, by Christmas, they were top of the table. So that's how good he was and that's how that's how much he trusts his philosophy. So he brought that same philosophy to uh, Red Bull and he implemented that across all clubs. And as you mentioned, all those coaches, coaches like Jesse Marsh and Marco Rosa and Julian Alves and all these top coaches, they all learned from the Ralf Rangnick way. And um, they're reaping the rewards of it now. Obviously, Ralf Rangnick left the group last year in 2020, um, but his impact will be felt forever because that philosophy will be in there for a very long time. So even without him, they're able to move forward because they know what to do, and that's that's Andrew Ralph Ranić. So his impact is for is going to last for a very long time. I think it's very much the chicken and egg of your of European football that relationship between Ragnik and Red Bull, which came first. Yep. <laughs> and I, yep. and um, I suppose upon reflection, one of my favorite chapters in the book, Karen, was um, on that your interview with Ernst Tanner who at the time was the youth director of Salzburg, Salzburg's Academy. He's now, of course, yes. the Academy Director of Philadelphia Union. However, Ernst believes that 2017 was the inflection point for the Red Bull model when it comes to football with their UEFA Youth League success. I suppose, is that something which you could please elaborate upon? Yeah, for sure. Um, and you mentioned Ernst Tanner. That was my favourite chapter too. It's really fun to write, really fun person to talk to because he was so open about everything. He, he takes great pride in his work too. Um, but yeah, as, as he said, 2017 was the turning point for uh, Red Bull. And I think that, that winning the youth, winning the UEFA Youth League was the most important success in Red Bull's football history. Um, you know, they've, Salzburg have won league titles and they've gone to Europa League semi-final and Leipzig reached the Champions League semi-final last year. But I think that 2017 winning the Youth League was the most important thing because... Uh, it legitimized their youth approach, their youth-centered approach. Uh, you know, Rangnick joined in 2012, and in five years, which is a fairly short time, they won the biggest trophy in youth football in Europe. So it's a pretty big deal, and five years is not a long enough time, but they managed to do it. And especially from a country like Austria, where European success is very rare. You know, I think it was about 20 years prior that a, that a team from Austria last reached the last four of a European competition. But they managed to do it in five years, and that's very impressive work. And not just that, the clubs they beat along the way, clubs like Barcelona, Benfica, uh, Manchester City, PSG, Atletico Madrid, these are all big clubs when it comes to youth development. You know, you beat one club, okay, fine, might be lucky. You beat two clubs, okay, might be a bit of luck. But you beat five clubs on the bounce, these five top clubs, which have a fair amount of money and a big history in, in youth development. It's a pretty big deal. But they managed to do it, and there's a snippet in 2017 when they played Atletico Madrid at home in the Youth League. That game attracted more fans to their home stadium than the senior team's next home game. So the people of Salzburg were involved in it as well, and they were excited to see where, it was, where this was going. So yeah, the Youth League, uh, the Youth League win in 2017, it created a big um, excitement around this team, and it's something that the people of Salzburg and the club takes great pride in. You know, that is what they're known for now. That they produce great young players. And they're still doing it to this day. You know, people like Karima Deyemi, Pascal Daka, they all come through the academy. So, yeah, you could say that it sort of legitimized what they're doing. 
further on to that point, Karen, why is there such a disproportionate amount of players being produced and developed within Salzburg as opposed to Leipzig? You could say Salzburg is there's, there's a bit more freedom in in Salzburg compared to Leipzig because in Sal in Austria, Salzburg have a much bigger advantage than everyone else. You know, if you look at the the the, the money side of things from last year, I think they have a four times bigger budget than every other club than in, in Austria, so they can afford to take those risks and afford to um, sort of play, give a chance to younger players and younger managers. You know, if you do that in the Bundesliga, you probably miss out on the Champions League. Leipzig have been qualifying for European competition in every season that they've been in the Bundesliga, which is five years. But if they decide to play a team of 20, 21-year-olds, there's a very big risk that 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 streak of playing in Europe just uh, stops. You know, so you can afford to take a risk in Austria, but you can't do the same in Germany because in Germany, you have clubs like Dortmund, Bayern Munich, Gladbach, um, Wolfsburg, Leverkusen, etc., if Leipzig decide to take that risk, those five clubs will eclipse them. But in Austria, because Salzburg has such a big competitive advantage, they can afford to take that risk, and they probably won't lose the league title either. So you could say it's it's a bit of the it's a bit about the environment and a bit of the freedom that these players get. And um, you know, when it comes to European competition, Salzburg are willing to, to to play these younger players in the Champions League and the Europa League, and they get pretty far. And you know. I spoke to Ernst Tanner about this and he said that the Champions League, the group stage, if they finish third or fourth, it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of because that is as far as an Austrian club can go, especially with a club like this that focuses on younger players. So you could say, whereas from the outside looking in, people might say it's a bit of a failure that Salzburg can't go far. From the inside, when you know what's happening, you know it's a bit of a success when they reach the quarterfinals of the Europa League or the semifinals of the Europa League and finish third or fourth in the group stage of the Champions League. That is, that is their success because it's a big achievement to go that far with a young team. Of course. And it's a minor miracle, the success Salzburg have had on a continental level for the past few years. I believe they were one extra time goal away from reaching the Europa League final in 2018, yep. losing to Marseille. But then just delving a bit further deeper into that, Karen, the, the club's recruitment model, of course, has received a few praise from all the above, <laughs> who work at the higher rings of football. Now, we know Red Bull play this expansive, aggressive, pressing style of football. Uh, we've seen how Red Bull have become big hitters in small ponds, niche markets such as the French second division, Africa, more particularly Zambia, with Seydou Kouate and uh, Patson Vaca. What is a Red Bull player? What is the scout's mandate when they are searching for these players? I think a large part of it is showing the right mentality and the right uh, attitude to develop. I think the, you could say that the word mentality is thrown about a bit, you know, a bit freely these days. But there is a certain Red Bull mentality that I would say exists because you want you would want to develop to the next level. You know, when you're a young player, you want to reach the next level. Whereas if you're an older player, you'd want to protect that status of being a good player or being being a, a popular enough player. So I think they try to find players who want to get to that next level and who want to expand in, in their careers, who want to grow. And we've seen that, you know, they have a, a very good success rate of developing younger players. And all these players, you could say, have a certain element of level-headedness that they want to become better players. So I think that would be perhaps the main characteristic of, of a Red Bull player. Other characteristics like, you know, which are stuff that you can do on the field, things like speed or things like showing a bit of accuracy and 
in, in finding spaces and all that. You know, German football is always very technical. It always has been. And I think showing those good technical qualities where you know what to do without the ball and you use your mind as much as you use your feet, I think that's, that's perhaps a secondary characteristic. But the main thing would be to show the right attitude towards wanting to become a better footballer. And I suppose a main part of that recruitment model, Karan, would be the succession planning involved when you look at the players that have moved in recent years from Salzburg to Leipzig, such as most recently Dominic Sal- Salisbury. Uh, you're looking at Deo Upmakano, Marcel Savitzer, Nabi Keita, Sadio Mane. It's very rare that you get an Erling Braut Haaland or a Takumi Minamino that escaped through the cracks. And then even you look at the most recent transfer window, of course, Salisbury leaves, replaced straight away by Brandon Aronson. Uh, you're looking at Patson Zaka, probably on his way in the summer. And yep. you have young Karim Adeyemi coming through the academy right below him. Just to touch upon that, I mean, the level of strategic planning and thinking involved in that must be incredible. Yeah, yeah, you're right. When, when one player leaves, they've got two or three options in mind. And sometimes those options might be um, already at the club or already at at their organization or closely linked to them. Um, you know, Red Bull obviously that Leipzig and Salzburg are two different entities and in, in all technicalities they are, but we all know that there's some sort of behind the scenes thing going on where it's easier for them to get Salzburg players or Leipzig players to their club. Um, and, and we've seen that over the years, you know, even UEFA have tried to step in and sort of put in an investigation, but it was declared that they're two different entities. Um, but, but yeah, you're right when you say that they have a good amount of succession planning because they want to keep the next two, three years in mind rather than just this season. Uh, you know, Upamecano left yesterday. Or he's going to leave at the end of the season when the deal was completed yesterday uh, to buy. And, and they've already got two players ready to come in, uh, two players who are, who they believe will be uh, good enough to replace Upamecano. Um, but, but yeah, to, to return to the question, they do go through a, a long level and long time of analysis to determine which players are good enough to replace these players. Uh, Schopenhauer was a good example. He left for Leipzig from Salzburg and immediately he was replaced by Brandon Aronson. And they're willing to work with him to sort of make him that sort of player who's as good as Schaub- who's as good as Schopenhauer. Um, but, but yeah, to ultimately conclude, they do have a, a good recruitment model where they're looking at the next three, four, five years rather than just this season. And seeing what both clubs have done in the past few years, Salzburg and Leipzig, do you think you could replicate that without the multi-club model approach? I think it's possible. We've seen it in the past with Hoffenheim, where, obviously, as I mentioned, Ralf Rennick was there, and he just had one Hoffenheim to control, and he did fairly well with them. You know, He made them an established Bundesliga club. Um, but you do need a, a, the right amount of investment. I think if you don't have that level of money, and if you're not willing to invest that amount of money into your academy and into uh, your recruitment and your scouting and all that, it's very difficult, but it is possible for sure, provided you give the right amount of money and investment into it. I think what you've seen recently in the past few months with the collapse of the media pro deal in Ligue 1, uh, Syria, most recently losing the BN Sports contract, or BN Sports, in fact, defaulting on a 100 euro million payment. I think you're going to see more and more kind of clubs looking through their academies throughout the next few years in, that, in this post-COVID world as they try to negotiate the perils of the current financial implications. But moving on from the playing staff to the coaching staff, 
And we look, we see there's been much fanfare about the likes of Jesse Marsh and Julian Hagelsman even. Marsh currently links with taking the hot seat of Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season. Nagelsmann most recently with Chelsea before Tuchel took over, now with Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, how do you see their careers panning out, Karen? I think both of them will have very good careers. Um, they're both very astute tactically. Uh, Nagelsmann, he's always been very outspoken about what he wants to do. He's always spoken about natural progression, that he won't be willing to rush to the next job if he feels he's not ready. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, he, re- he rejected Real Madrid in 2018 when Zidane left the club. Um, and he said he said that he rejected it because he didn't feel it was the right move for him, that the step from Hoffenheim to Real Madrid was too big. He moved to Leipzig instead, and it was the right thing to do ultimately because it gave him the room to make mistakes and learn. You know, he's, he's just 33 years old. Um, he's, been, he's been managing for about five years now. Um, so there, there's still room for him to grow and time for him to... to to work at a bigger club. And I think eventually it will happen. He will be at a big Premier League club uh, at some point in the future, even maybe in Bayern Munich at some point. Um, but for, for Jesse Marsh, it's very similar. I think that it's good that he's stayed at Salzburg. I hope he stayed at Salzburg for one more year and, you know, gets that little bit more Champions League experience and sort of maybe if he can try to break into the round of 16. Um, but he's on the right path for sure. Um, obviously, I wouldn't see, I wouldn't be surprised to see him going to Borussia Mönchengladbach this, this season because, uh, Marco Rosa just left for Dortmund, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him leave for Germany. It would be an ideal move for him. And you know, Red Bull Salzburg managers uh, in the past have made moves from Austria to Germany because of that similar style of football and uh, style of football that clubs want to play in Germany. So I, I think three of the last four uh, Salzburg managers have gone on to manage in the Bundesliga. So it wouldn't be surprised to see Marsh taking that jump. Um, as early as this season. so But but I, I do predict a good future for both of them. Okay, fantastic. And as we've seen throughout the inception of Red Bull within football, there's been this natural kind of linear progression. Uh, we've seen Leipzig and Salzburg become competitive at a continental level. Um, Karan, do you envisage a future perhaps where the likes of Leipzig retain their best players, the likes of Deo Upmacano, Timo Werner, Julian Nagelsmann stays at the club and they've already made platform to compete for titles. Is that something which you foresee anytime soon? I think they're going to have to at some point if they want to win trophies. Um, you know, I think this season is quite important for them, uh, especially in the German Cup where they are in the last eight. And if they win that trophy, which it seems like they, they could because Bayern Munich, are, they, they have a very good chance to win it. Um, I, I think winning that will be very important to them because it can be a more appealing factor to other clubs or to other players that you know we're building something good here and you can join, you know, be a part of the, be a part of what we're doing. Um, but I think that 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 thing where they sell their best players that needs to stop eventually because of the difficulty of firstly replacing the player and secondly building that player up to a level where he can play with the best players. You know, Upamecano has gone this year. Um, Werner left last year. Naby Keita left in 2018. So they need to keep hold of their best players in order to get to that next level. Um, what they've done in terms of development, in terms of working with younger players and making them great players is excellent, but there's only there's only so far you can go each year if you sell your best players, right? You know, they can qualify for the Champions League each year, they can go far in the Cup, go far in the League, go far in the Champions League, but it won't be sustainable enough if they're not getting the trophies in and they need to get those trophies in if they want to be a top, top club. Sure. 
And if you had any recommendations for listeners, Karen, as to who to watch out for coming up from Salzburg at this present time, who would you tell them? Um, you, you know the, the top players, Pat and Daka is good. Second quarter is excellent. They've all had they've all had good seasons. I think that's the best under twenty three duo in Europe this season. Um, you know, Karim Adeyemi is quite good. Um, but there are a lot of players, players like that, Adeyemi, Daka, Enoch Onwep, who's done quite well. Um, but yeah, those those three are the, are the top players to watch out for. I think those three will have a very big future uh, or a very big career uh, in the future. Yeah. Fantastic. No, brilliant. Finally, what's next for you, Karan? Is there any big projects or books you're working on currently? Um, I've got a, a project planned for this year around the same time. Um, I, I wouldn't want to reveal it just yet, but I will very soon, um, hopefully by the end of the month or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's very similar to Red Bull and it's very similar to what I normally do. But yeah, I, I won't reveal too much just yet. Fantastic. Now, uh, so that's a wrap, Karan. Uh, just for our audience, Where's best for people to reach out to you via social media, LinkedIn, uh, yeah, can, Twitter, perhaps? Yeah, I can be reached on Twitter at current underscore stage money 26. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on most social media apps. If you want me to reach me on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, it's all fine. I'm current stage money everywhere. Fantastic. So yeah. I'll include all that information in the show notes below. I'll also include a link to your page, I believe, on Amazon with the book, Wings of Change, would recommend it. For any football fan out there to buy. Um, Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I hope we can have you on again on the pod in the near future with your new project, whatever that is. But um, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me, Quan. Bye.